Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got three wonderful students with me today, brand new to psychiatry. You guys have been here about a week. And let's do some introductions. How about if we start with the two of you that are not the focus of the podcast, sure. and then we'll go to Valentina. Yeah, I'm Gio. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And? I'm Stephen Doyle, also a medical student from Rocky Vista University. Also a third-year student, right? So you yeah. guys are just starting uh, something I, I remember one of my peers once said, they can hurt you, but they can't stop the clock. <laughs> so yeah, so relatable. as much as I'm torturing you guys here today, just remember this, the clock will keep running. And then Valentina, you were the person that kind of inspired this, this topic. Uh, tell us, since this is your podcast, or one of maybe two or three that you might end up doing, why don't you start off by telling us just a little bit more about yourself, and then when Gio and Stephen come back for their podcast, I'll have them tell us a little more about themselves, okay? Okay. Uh, my name is Valentina. I'm also a third-year medical student from Rocky Vista. Um, I'm originally from New York, and I apparently am too interested in everything, and that's why I have a very difficult time sticking to just one podcast. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is, uh, now we have a banned phrase for this podcast, and it involves uh, rabbits. Is that correct? Mm, maybe. <laughs> okay. So, so we're going to see how we do with that. Um, and uh, Valentina, when you started medical school, I, I'm aware that you've become passionate about everything as you've continued in, in your medical training. But when you started medical school, what was it you thought you might end up doing? I always thought I would do pediatrics mm -hmm. just because um, every stage of my life I've ended up working with kids in some way or another. Um, and so I've I always thought that was just going to be what I was going to do, and then I started doing rotations, and everything is awesome, and it's very <laughs> difficult to decide <laughs> just one thing. I, 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 by the way, our team, uh, you guys have only been here a week, and, and we always have such great experiences with medical students, and you guys are no exception. I'm already getting a lot of really positive feedback from the team about how much they appreciate what you guys are doing and, and the interest you're taking in working with the patients here at the State Hospital. You guys are doing a wonderful job. So, so let's start this off just a little bit. Um, this topic came up in part after a discussion about schizophrenia. Tell me a little bit more about uh, how your mind started racing, and not in a bipolar way or an ADHD <laughs> way, right? But, but how, how you became interested during this uh, discussion about schizophrenia. You've told me this before, but I think it's worth, worth talking about again. Yeah, we were going over some of the different risk factors for the development of schizophrenia, and one of them just seemed so out of the blue and so random, and that was the presence of antibodies for toxoplasma and how that has increases the odds ratio for developing schizophrenia. And that for me was like, light bulb, what does this mean? Why is it doing this? How is it doing this? And so... I went down the proverbial rabbit hole, <laughs> um, and I did it. I, a, a side note, I have listened to many of the previous podcasts, and one thing that I've heard in every podcast was people saying that they went down the rabbit hole, and I told myself I wouldn't say it, but I, I had to. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I wondered how, what is the immunologic component of this, and why is this happening? And so I started looking more into toxoplasma and the high-yield board review, but then I started looking into all of the different immunological components in schizophrenia, which was just super cool. In a previous podcast, we talked about how schizophrenia 
um, between two people, two people that have the same diagnosis can appear to be completely, have completely different conditions. Yes. And I think what you're speaking to is the diversity of the condition. Yes. So let's, let's make the high yield part now. Let's, let's focus on that. So first of all, let's start with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. I know we've been there before, but I think uh, it merits repetition. So Gio, talk, talk to us about the diagnosis of schizophrenia. If you yeah. Will. So schizophrenia involves, um, positive and negative symptoms occurring. Um, so the positive symptoms being hallucinations, delusions, disorganized thought and motor movement. Uh, you need at least two of those to make the diagnosis. And then you have negative symptoms uh, like decreased emotional expression. They have like a flatter affect. You get um, elogia, they speak less, and they have decreased abolition. So they have less motivation to do things that they used to find purpose in. And so, the dis the these psychotic disorders are broken up mainly by timeline so if you have um, these symptoms for at least a day but less than a month then it's a brief psychotic disorder and then the next one would be if you have uh, the disorder for less than six months it's schizophreniform disorder and then if you have the symptoms for greater than six months it's uh, schizophrenia and usually at this point um, the patients have a decline in their normal function Kind of sad that we have to wait that long, and and one of the, one of the aspects of the research that, and we talked about Dr. Tori a little bit before we started this podcast. His point was that if you could figure out some of the antecedents to schizophrenia, and tackle those and prevent the condition, that's better than trying to treat it ultimately. And I think you know what you're saying is there's already decline at that point. It's kind of one of the mm -hmm. sad commentaries on, yeah. on how difficult it is to treat schizophrenia. Um, board questions. We wanted to kind of talk about how the shelf, how we can use the, the information about risk factors for schizophrenia to prepare for the shelf exam. So I'm going to go through a list of risk factors that, that are talked about. So Dr. Tori put together this really great list of, of risk factors, and, and he's a psychiatrist, or was a psychiatrist at the Stanley Medical Research Center, I think yes. is the name of the place he was at. And at the time he published his last study that I looked at, it was about eight years ago, and he's 83 now, according to Wikipedia. He looks like a wonderful, wonderful person. So he, he put together a, um, a set of risk factors and then said, hey, and I want to add um, the risk factor of, of antibodies to schizophrenia at the time of diagnosis or, or in patients that have schizophrenia. Um, and we're going to talk about maybe two different settings for um, for toxoplasma antibodies. One is maternal infection or the possibility of maternal infection, maternal antibodies. And then we'll talk about antibodies at the time, uh, at the, with the person who has schizophrenia and, and IgG antibodies there. So if you wanna talk about the highest risks, so, and, and we're gonna talk a little bit about um, relative risk and odds ratios, and we're essentially going to assume that in schizophrenia, because the prevalence is less than 5%, that we can say that an odds ratio is roughly the same as a, as a relative risk, because the denominators become almost the same, right? Um, but if you want to talk about the highest relative risk, it's having a mother with schizophrenia, having a father with schizophrenia, having a sibling with schizophrenia, and those relative risks, our risk ratio started about 9.9 .9 and dropped down to about seven. So seven to 10 with sibling being uh, least risky. If, if you're the offspring 
of immigrants from some countries, and I, and I like the way that Dr. Tori talked about this, it's not all countries, but some countries, then uh, your uh, relative risk is 4.5. If you immigrate to or from some countries, it's 2.7. And then, and, and notice these are pretty big drops, right? We're dropping from almost a 10 to uh, mid twos pretty quickly. This is where maternal antibodies come in. If you have a mother who has high levels of uh, IgG towards um, towards toxoplasma, then your risk is about 2.7. And also, Tori in this article makes the case that uh, if you have Ig antibodies, and I don't know that they made the same distinction between high levels and low levels. Um, then you you also have that increased risk, also about 2.7. That's based on meta-analysis data. The other data is a uh, few studies. There's not as much information on maternal antibodies that that I found. And then urban birth, urban rearing, uh, again mid twos. Um, if you have minor physical abnormalities, then you have a, about a 2.23 odds ratio. And then most of the rest of these are odds, odds ratios. TBI, and I think Gio, we're going to be talking, no, Stephen. No, Stephen, we might be talking about TBIs a little bit in the future and the effects of TBI on mental health. Sexual abuse, 1.45. Um, obstetric complications, so perinatal hypoxia, a couple of other things. What, does anybody remember? We talked about those, and I mm -hmm. they always yeah. slip my mind. Umbilical cord. Yeah. Umbilical cord. Anything else? Was it uh, bleeding as well? Uh, there's prom, uh, pre preterm, pre premature rupture of membrane. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, here's an interesting one. Father over 55, uh, odds ratio is somewhere between 2 and 6, roughly. Uh, but if you're a father over 45, it's between 1 and, and uh, 1.7, roughly. Uh, specific genetic, genetic polymorphisms, right? So we've got these huge GWAS studies that are going on. And uh, depending on the specific polymorphism, you, you barely have this odds ratio of uh, 1.09 to 1.24. But then the one that we're always tested on. So seasonality, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one you need to remember because it seems to show up a lot. Yep. And who can remember which seasons have higher risk of schizophrenia associated with birth in those seasons? Winter and spring months for birth. Why? Well, I have a theory on that. <laughs> Does it have anything to do with why some mice are less afraid of cats? Uh, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those are the risk factors. And, and, and I just want to highlight a couple of those again. It, it gets back a little bit to, we, we know there's some genetic risk to this, right? Family, if you have a family member that has schizophrenia, your risk is going to be quite a bit higher. Mm -hmm. If you have an identical twin, it's still yeah. not 100%, right? Concordance generally is considered to be around 40 to 60%. And I think, um, I think, Valentina, you picked up in one of the podcasts, we talked about that uh, concordance being higher in one of the studies mm -hmm. we cited. In the but, Swedish study, that but it went from... 60 to 80%, but that we need to be aware, generally speaking, if you're looking at concordance, we need to remember somewhere around 50%, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to show up on the exams. Um, so, so remembering those kinds of things are going to be probably more important than remembering whether you have an old dad or, mm -hmm. or um, maybe the immigration risk, those are fairly high. I think yeah. those are being tested a little bit more. Also, um, lifetime cannabis exposure and early... Um, early adolescent uh, cannabis exposure is another um, big risk factor that maybe we'll talk about later. Yeah, um, it wasn't on the list. And then... But that can come up in a, in a board's vignette as um, 
16-year-old began smoking cannabis and then later onset. So that can kind of clue you in as well. Excellent. I like that a lot. And then there's one other one that's not on this list that you and I yes. came across this study that we both really, really liked. Oh, it's such a good study. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, we saw that um, with increasing hospitalizations for infection and, auto, and autoimmune disease, you increase the odds ratio for um, schizophrenia. But this study was just awesome because it was done in Denmark and they have... Um, Na uh, they have national health care, and so they have a registry of every person that's born in all of Denmark, and then they can account for emigration, immigration, they can account for every time you've been hospitalized, and uh, the time of diagnosis. So it's a really, really powerful study. I just thought it was super cool, and they accounted for all these um, possible confounding variables like substance abuse, um, that could lead to difference in hygiene and infection. And it was just a really, really cool study. <laughs> it was very, very, very well done, wasn't it? So I think we're going to go down the rabbit hole <laughs> in part based on that study next week. Is that right? And the odds ratios, as I recall, were in the mid twos as well. And I think it was odds ratios, not relative risks on that, that study, but I, I don't recall as well on that. Uh, so actually it's incidence ratio, is on, incidence ratio? on that one. Okay. So uh, I could go in a little bit into what an odds ratio is versus an incidence ratio. That'd be great. Like. Um, so an odds ratio I is the odds that you have a condition given an exposure to the odds that you don't have the condition with the exposure. And an incidence ratio instead is going to be um, the incidence of um, the the incidence that you have the with being exposed over the incidence of not having um, been exposed. So um, in this in this study that is in Denmark, they found that certain conditions. So for example, the most likely. Um, autoimmune condition with schizophrenia was autoimmune hepatitis, mm. which I thought was really, really cool. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really cool and random. And then the second one was autoimmune thyroiditis. Um, and uh, also uh, the infections that were most associated um, were hepatitis as well. So I was really wondering what the connection is with the liver <laughs> and um, schizophrenia because they have a really high, so the incidence ratio, for example, with hepatitis was 4.89, mm. which is really high. Um, How do incidence ratios compare to odds ratios? Do you know? I, I don't have any idea about this and it's not really a fair question in the middle of a podcast, but uh, <laughs> if you know, I'd be interested. Um, so how they compare? Yeah. So um, I think it's just the based off of incidence. So okay. um, I am aware that the, the uh, quantity, the overall quantity. It, it seems like maybe there's a different ability here because I know that most of the studies we look at that are odds ratio related, and I, I had odds ratio a little different than what you described, mm -hmm. which is I had the odds of A in the presence of B, mm -hmm. and the odds of A in the absence of B as the denominator. So the numerator is odds of A in the presence of B, denominator is odds of A in the absence of B. And, and that gets, is slightly different than a, um, a risk ratio or relative risk, which is development, or, or development after exposure divided by total exposed over development of the condition of those not exposed over total not exposed, right? And, and to me, those, those 
are almost identical, the difference being the denominator. And, and, and again, I'm, I, I stared at this for like an hour yesterday trying to make sure I'm doing it the right way, so I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So maybe we can um, talk about in, um, like in the Tory study, mm-hmm. when they're discussing the odds ratio of 2.73 mm-hmm. for if you have antibodies um, to in um, maternal antibodies and then mm-hmm. development of schizophrenia in the offspring. Um, how would you how would you say that you reach that number then? Right. So that's the challenge with the odds ratio. Right. Is is it's I think they're best done with case control, and I think the incidence that you talked about is so different because this whole Denmark area, right? They they had I think it was the central hospital in the right this. They, they have all the, the records, right? The national database. The national yeah. database. They have all the records. And so you can look at everybody that has everything. And so you can do true incidents. Mm-hmm. And, and as opposed to that, you have these case-controlled studies. And I think the maternal antibody study was a case-controlled study. And so what they do is they get um, a number of people who have schizophrenia, mm-hmm. right? And so the odds of a schizophrenia. Given toxoantibodies. Given the toxoantibodies. So that'd be your numerator. And then um, patients with schizophrenia that didn't have toxoantibodies would be the denominator, I think. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Or have I got that off? Yeah. Good. <laughs> I was kind of worried about this, Valentina, that I would show up and not be able to hang with you on this one. So so I think that's where they come up with the 2.7. And, and let me go back. and So, so I want I to shift gears out of odds ratios for just a second. So just, just to... Uh, repeat again, our odds ratios are not as good a statistic as our relative risks, right? That we prefer a relative risk. When we do case-controlled studies, we're not able to do a relative risk. And when, uh, I think according to Tori, he cited somebody who said that when your incidence in the population drops below, or your prevalence in the population drops below 5%, then it's considered a rare disease and your risk ratio and your odds ratios essentially become the same numbers. Right. So those are maybe the take home points on the on the statistics of medicine. Would you add anything to that, Valentina? You're looking at me like I've totally got lost here. No. So I just um, I think the odds ratio, I do think I thought it was something different, but um, maybe we can add it as a note. Let's add um, it as a note, because I think it's so complicated, this this stuff and the yeah. difference between the odds ratio and the and the relative risk. I, I mean, I, I think that's why. We want to understand the difference, but it doesn't always, to me, it doesn't always make complete sense. I always have to review it. Yeah. Um, let's let's change gears, though, because I think we, we also wanted to tackle high-yield things that pop up associated with these risk factors, right? And, Stephen, you, you kind of went through um, not QWorld and not UBank, but the little sister of QWorld and UBank, <laughs> which is? Amboss. Amboss, man. I, you think yeah. I'd remember that better by now. So AMBOSS is, is a, a good um, study tool that I've been using. I don't exactly know how it compares to UWorld, but I went over uh, all the questions that they had on anything that related to schizophrenia or where schizophrenia was in part of that um, differential that they have on the list that you might be thinking about in the question stem. Um, when I was going through it, half of those questions were all about differentiating the diagnosis. Um, so as So for things like, Psychotic disorders, you know the difference between brief psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, schizophrenia, 
Schizoaffective disorder, mood disorders with psychosis, substance-induced psychosis, pathologic grief, or just uh, personality disorders that might sh share similar um, just so similarities in presentation. But uh, it was amazing the risk factors in the question stems. They mentioned about a third of the time some history of uh, marijuana use. So I think that's, you know, marijuana is on the rise right now, and that's maybe a hot topic for, for an, maybe another time. Um, but another thing that was interesting is about all, almost all the, the, uh, the, pa the patients that came in in those question stems were between their, in their 20s or early 30s. Um, I'd say about two-thirds of them were males. Um, there was about, I think, 10, 10 females in the, in the questions I, I went through. Um, and then family history came up quite a bit. So those are the big ones. Um, so substance uses, 20s and 30s, male, and family history. And there's quite a few questions on treatment and management, um, which is pretty high yield, I would say, for, for um, uh, psychiatry, is getting your treatments down really well, and then uh, what some adverse effects that they might have. From those treatment side effects of medications mm -hmm. and yeah. so forth, yeah. Very, very good. So I think what we're saying is these risk factors for schizophrenia are fairly low yield, and the one that I was always tested on during the time that I was being tested for, for shelf exams and board exams and those kinds of things, really aren't that, the, the risk of those is quite minor compared to the ones that we're not tested on so mm -hmm. much, right? All right, yeah. so let's let's talk a little bit about toxoplasma because I, yeah. I think I teased that why are some mice not afraid of cats, right? And apparently, it turns out that if your cat is in, if, you're, if a mouse, I'm sorry, is infected with toxoplasma, they become less neophobic. And I don't even know what neophobic means. Anybody know what ne I've got uh, Valentina Googling it as we speak. Uh, I, I'm, I'm having an extreme up. or irrational dislike of anything new or unfamiliar. Which is what I thought it would be because neo, new, and phobic fear. Startle, startle response. I think more than that. More I think that. it's uh, like novelty kind of mm -hmm. things. But So anyway, apparently mice uh, have a natural aversion to the odor of cats, and if they become infected with toxoplasma, they're just not as afraid. Yeah. But toxoplasma, intracellular, obligate intracellular um, parasite, mm -hmm. um, crosses the placenta, and there's a specific syndrome associated with this that is often tested on. So not yeah. yield for our exam, but yield for other exams. Anybody remember that syndrome? Yeah, so um, uh, toxoplasma is one of the most tested probably torch infections just because of the syndrome that it produces. So there's a triad that um, you should all know. <laughs> uh, hydrocephalus, seizures, and intracranial calcifications. And then there's two other um, pretty unique symptoms that you can get, which are deafness and chorioretinitis. Um, this would all be in um, the fetus. And the infection is worse later on in pregnancy. And that's why you tell pregnant women to not change the litter box or if they have to, to use gloves and wash their hands. But so that's one of the main um, forms of uh, contamination ingestion of the oocytes from uh, feces and from cat feces. Um, another way is uh, ingestion of tissue cysts. So that would be in having undercooked um, meat. And so that's why another thing that you tell pregnant women is to really make sure that their food is well cooked. 
These are all really important because the later on in pregnancy that a woman becomes infected, the worse it can be for um, the fetus. So you can tell everybody to microwave lunch meats, which is never a really yummy thought, but, <laughs> but it's something you can do. The other thing I saw when I was reading, and I, I never thought about this, is uh, garden vegetables. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, in one of, the, one of the studies that I was reading um, that happened in Spain, they saw that there was this increase in toxo um, in the population, but they realized that a lot of the... Um, food and a lot a lot of the um the psychiatric patients had been working in the garden and the garden had stray cats and so it was contaminated with cat feces and so they wondered if that was a possible um confounding variable that just everybody had toxo because there were so many stray cats in that hospital interesting yeah. um i didn't read that i i read something just slightly different which was just uh Hey, you know, cats get out in the garden, wash your, wash your food. <laughs> Not nearly as interesting as, as your story. Um, so, so Toxo, this risk ratio, the, or the odds ratio that we talked about, somewhere around 2.7. Mm -hmm. I think that there are two, two different things to think about here. And I think, I can't remember if I mentioned them before or not. One is that maternal antibodies, there was a study done by uh, Brown in 2005 where they went back to a group a birth cohort uh, that was, um, there was a study done by Kaiser in California, and there was a birth cohort that was separated out between 1959 and 1967. They were able to go back and look at the blood um, in women that had given birth, and they were able to follow up on some number of the children um, nearly 40 years later, mm -hmm. uh, 30 to 40 years later, and, and identify patients yeah, live births that had gone on to develop schizophrenia. Yeah. And what they found was with high titers, uh, ratios of greater than one to 128, so so um, that that increased the, the odds ratio of that was about 2.7. But then also there's a meta-analysis that you looked at which yeah. talked about antibodies in in people who currently have schizophrenia. And do you wanna tell us a little bit about that? So yeah, I, I looked at a meta-analysis and it found that there was an odds ratio of 2.73 and it looked over five decades in 17 countries, which I thought was pretty cool, just because it wasn't a country specific finding. Um, and they looked at the maternal sera for women who gave birth to offspring who later developed um, schizophrenia and schiz or schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Mm -hmm. And also um, it looked at newborn sera. So um, newborns that had the antibodies as well. And then it looked at their um, likelihood for developing schizophrenia as well. So one step beyond the study that I saw. So not just the maternal sera, but then the pediatric or the newborn sera as well. Mm -hmm. and, and what did they find that, that, was there a difference between the antibody level in the, in the newborn that predicted schizophrenia, no, or was, it, was they, there data about the maternal? Of the, both of those were good predictors. And did they have a cutoff like the Brown article did? Do you recall? I can't recall. So while, while you're, um, if that doesn't come up in the next few minutes, I wanted to comment on a couple of other things in the Brown article that I thought were interesting. First of all, that there were about 20,000 live births during the period of this cohort. So it was a pretty good sized cohort, sort of like mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And the numbers came out to be very, very similar. Right, this odds ratio of 
um, schizophrenia, I think, was 2.61 in the high titer group. Mm -hmm. So similar kinds of numbers. But there were a couple of other things that were very interesting. First of all, that about nearly 20% of all women of childbearing years have these IgG uh, yeah. antibodies. Or I, I'm sorry, Ig, um, IgG antibodies. I think I said IgE. And, and let's just go back very briefly. I had to go back and reread everything I knew about <laughs> antibodies and antibody chains and how they develop. And, and let's just say very briefly that in a, in a very simplified version of what I understand, we have B cells uh, that are already floating around in our blood, right? And if the expressed uh, IgM chain that is on that B cell somehow attaches itself to a foreign body, it will then trigger an immune response leading to development of, uh, it becomes a blast, I think is one way of saying it. There are other names for that. And it starts cranking out, uh, replicating itself and cranking out antibodies, IgG antibodies. Now those IgG antibodies stick around for a very long time. So yeah. when we're looking back at these uh, toxoplasma infections, we really can't know when the infection was relative to when the serum was drawn, right? Exactly. And that, be, that creates some of the real difficulties. So it, it might be that uh, women that are having uh, these very high titers might have had a more recent infection, but we really, we mm -hmm. just really don't know. Yeah. And, and maybe those titers, you know, if we, if we had some way of knowing when the infection was relative to the pregnancy, we would find stronger links. Yeah. But even then, the whole goal is, how do we stop people from getting the infection? And the second part of that, I think, is um, what's the mechanism of action in this? Because if we can figure out you know, the pathways for schizophrenia, maybe we can find something that helps us you know, further elucidate where all of these different conditions that we group together as schizophrenia are coming from. Yeah, yeah. And especially because IgG is able to pass through the placenta, that's why there's so much um, investigation into what IgG specifically is doing. But um, I looked into another study that was Be looking Before you go there, because I think you're going to go a lot deeper than the <laughs> Brown study went. And I just want to tie that together with two things. Mm -hmm. And that is, first of all, one of the scenarios that they had for schizophrenia was that maybe IgG, which passes the placenta, mm -hmm. may be doing something to the fetus that leads to schizophrenia eventually, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But the other theory was that there's something called uh, toxofactor. I'd never heard of this before. And I, I did a you know a Google um, Scholar search on it, found a few articles. It's very infrequently mentioned, but there was this very interesting study by uh, Dr. Grimwood, Grimwood, uh, done in 1983, cited in in 2005 by the Brown Group. Um, but what they what they found is there's this speculated toxin that might cause the problems associated with toxoplasma and they isolated a toxin, they injected it in mice, and, and it was just, it, it wreaked havoc on the mice and, and created some of the picture that we see with, with maybe the birth defects. But, but it didn't really, that I saw, give this clear link to schizophrenia, but it's hypothesized it could be a factor in that. So you did a much deeper dive, and I think before I paused you and said, hey, let me tell you the simple stuff, <laughs> you're about to go, way down into the rabbit hole about some really <laughs> cool stuff you found about toxoplasma and schizophrenia and maybe some possible pathways for that. Yeah, so um, I, I so there's a lot of different theories about schizophrenia, right? And what causes it, what doesn't, and it seemed like it, it may be multifactorial or a final common pathway, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
but so I was just first investigating the effects of toxoplasmosis. So what we were talking about earlier with the mice and not being afraid of the cats and uh, they looked at specifically um, mild versus uh, acute versus chronic um, infection in mice and schizophrenia like symptoms and they found that uh, there were changes in their levels of um, of different neurotransmitters so in acute infection there were um, changes in homovanillic acid and they had a decrease in norepinephrine but what I thought was interesting was the chronic toxoplasma infection they had a 14 percent higher rate of dopamine and most of our treatments for schizophrenia involve some form of um, dopamine antagonist, right? So I thought that was really interesting that Toxo was affecting um, these mice and affecting the same neurotransmitters that we see have uh, different um, function in the patients that we see here in the unit. Uh, the other thing I thought was interesting was uh, I started looking at kind of the immunologic pathways because I thought why is it that toxo is it toxo that's specifically doing this or are there other infectious processes that are also causing this and there's been some links with um, herpes simplex is the the most strongly evident one but also with influenza right and um, this winter and spring hypothesis there's higher rates of toxo in winter and spring there's higher rates of influenza in winter and spring so me is this a it might be a symptom of these infectious processes. Also, um, some of the genes that we found that are related to schizophrenia are HLA-related genes. So that's also a part that involves with the immune system. And so one thing that was found that regardless of the infectious etiology of the mother, um, there were, they found this pregnancy-increased spike of IL-8 that was found um, in all these different disease states that was associated with schizophrenia in the offspring. And there's thought that that could possibly be due to um, causing a glutamatergic hypofunction and changes in dopamine. Um, I just thought that was really cool, like how a lot of these connect through their downstream responses. So maybe it's not the antibody specifically, but maybe it could be more of a cytokine role. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll pause for a second before I get too, too far. <laughs> no, keep going. So this is very, very interesting, right? So, so we've, we had some students, it's probably been uh, eight or nine years, seven or eight years, I, I suspect. And in the past, rather than doing podcasts together, they would do like a grand rounds and present a slide deck to uh, the hospital. And we had a group that talked about toxoplasma, and they talked about two or three different ways that toxoplasma might co-opt dopaminergic uh, machinery mm -hmm. in the brain. So, so there are space-occupying processes. There are also, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's been so long now that I don't remember well, but I think it, it can cause the cell perhaps through transcription, to increase the amount of dopamine, and that might be what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't find a lot of information about that in, in what I was reading. It feels like yeah. it feels like toxoplasma has been lost in a way, mm -hmm. right? Did it, did it feel like the research was like 15 years ago yeah. and then sort of lost? Yeah, all the new, quote-unquote, new articles were like, the newest I could find was 2011 for some of the really relevant ones. And so 
I think that's why I started pivoting away from Toxo, just because um, I started to feel that maybe Toxo was just one of many, you know, maybe it wasn't actually the cause, it's just one of the ways that you can get an inflammatory response, infection that can lead to the similar changes. Um, but I think Toxo is really cool because it causes, in an adult who's infected, you can have psychiatric symptoms. Um, which so it and it has um, a preference for glial cells specifically astrocytes, which are also um, tend to be involved with um, with the development of schizophrenia. Right, there's a lot of implication with astrocytes now and um, and altering their metabolic function. So I saw some studies, which I I may have to look up how you pronounce this. Um, I think it's. So we're talking now, I think, about glutaminergic mm -hmm. transmitters. And, and I think yeah. if you remember back to... Uh, a couple of the podcasts that we've done about schizophrenia, we've talked about glutamate and mm -hmm. and how interesting that is. I don't remember if I've talked about this before, but there was a guy named Ruby. Uh, I think it was Ruby or Luby. I think it was Ruby and, and a, another person that were doing a bunch of studies in like the 1950s. And they would give people like um, stimulants like amphetamines. They would give people... Um, PCP and they would give people, uh, they would like keep people away from light and have sensory deprivation, all kinds of things. And one of the things that they, they kept going back to was, hey, we're, we're on a dopamine model here, but this PCP model that we're looking at seems pretty potent to us and it needs more attention. And I think mm -hmm. that gets into the negative symptoms and some of the glutaminergic uh, yeah. pathways. So, so let's do this as a teaser then. How about if mm -hmm. we come back then and let's, let's, in the meantime, figure out how to say the K word. <laughs> and then let's talk about how the inflammatory process might, might be an explanation for some of the schizophrenia symptoms or some of the mm -hmm. schizophrenia, some portion of the schizophrenia syndrome that we see. What do you think about that? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, you sure you want to go down that rabbit hole? Uh, <laughs> Band <sure>. word. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I had wanted to mention one last um, board-specific thing about Toxo, just the treatment, uh -huh. just because um, I don't want to leave it, people hanging. <laughs> yeah. So um, the main treatment there's a um, for infection would be to give um, pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine, and then you would supplement that with leucovorin. Um Alternatively, if you have a sulfa allergy, you can give um, azithromycin. Um, and so generally on the boards, you're going to be looking for something that's a, a two-step. Um, and then if you want to do prophylaxis, so um, toxoplasmosis tends to have um, pretty bad effects in immunocompromised patients, and that's the encephalitis where with board buzzword ring-enhancing lesions. Never forget that one. I remember um, that one. <laughs> it's been 20 years. Never remember that one. <laughs> but that one, um, you should always be looking for 
you, you'll suspect that they have a CD4 count of less than 100, and you should um, give them TMP SMX um, for prophylactically, prophylactically so, yeah. to prevent um, the development of the encephalitis and the ring-enhancing lesions in immunocompromised patients. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting was um, we talk about the the pediatric syndromes quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the one of the articles that I uh, read through mentioned, hey, by the way, if you identify this problem and an active infection in a newborn, treat it immediately because that does seem to dramatically the, the sooner it's treated, the the better the outcome is. Yeah. There there seems to be some gain in or, or some some recovery of potential loss might be mm -hmm. a way of saying that. So, mm -hmm. so great, great information on treatment. Yeah. All right, so I want to review just a couple of things. High yield for the, uh, the SHELP exam in terms of risk factors. Stephen, you want to review those very quickly? Just key takeaways. Big high yields uh, that came up in the questions were marijuana, being male apparently, <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, in your 20s to 30s, that's the, that's the uh, diagnostic window and having a big family history of, of uh, psychotic disorders. Okay, and high yield for the uh, shelf exam in terms of diagnosis of schizophrenia. Brief psychotic disorder, at least a day, less than a month. Uh, Schizophreniform disorder, less than six months. Uh, More than a month. Yeah, and then uh, schizophrenia, greater than six months. All right, those timelines are pretty important. Yeah. And high yield for anything else that we want to review. Congenital triad, hydrocephalus, seizures, and intracranial calcifications, plus chorioretinitis as an additional fourth. Um, and then ring-enhancing lesions in immunocompromised patients, prophylax with TMP, SMX. Excellent. Um, so those are the repeats of the high yield. And I think we got a little lost on risk ratios, odds ratios. We'll put that in. Uh, we'll put that in on the uh, in the text for anybody that makes it this far into the podcast, and uh, so that so that those equations can be there. Um, and I think my key takeaway would be get rid of cats. Oh, that's what I was going to say. My final thought, <laughs> especially if you're highest. immunocompromised, do not have cats. highest yield. Get a dog, not a cat. Oh no. I'm, I'm, I didn't necessarily go there. All right, so, um, all right, now that we've reviewed high-yield stuff, let's see, Stephen, last last thoughts. Oh, I just find schizophrenia fascinating, and it's this is the uh, the fringe of the research out there that we're trying to figure out more about it. Um, hopefully in the next, like, decade or so, we'll have a better grasp on what's causing this and what better treatments can we do for it. Oh, man, I, I'm looking forward to better treatments. You're preaching to the choir on that one. <laughs> Gio? Uh, my final thought would be um, sometimes on the, in the question sends, you might want to pull the trigger and call it schizophrenia um, if they had it for a long time or if they've had magical thinking, but it's a schizotypal personality disorder. Very good. So personality difference between personality disorders and, and schizophrenia. I think we mentioned or have talked that there's, it's, there's this schizo, schizophrenia umbrella, schizophrenia spectrum disorders, and yet schizophrenia is very different than that cluster A. And, and I think there might be somebody that talks about one of the clusters in one of the upcoming presentations know. too. I don't we'll know see. That would be. Might be Geo. <laughs> Never know for sure. And then uh, lastly, uh, Valentina, very, very well done. Great topic, very well prepared on this. Lots of interesting information. Huge topic, and we, we managed to do this in about 43 minutes. So um, tell us your take, your last thoughts, last word. Um, 
tune in next week (laughs) (laughs) to hear more about this and quinolones and antibiotics and more immunological responses with schizophrenia. <laughs> very, very cool. And and I'm going to be reading about IL-8. On that note, guys, thank you so much. You guys did a great job. Team out. You guys are supposed to say team out. Oh, team out. Team out. <laughs> <laughs>